This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Amanda Delheimer. I'm reading a book about loneliness right now, and one of the things that has really struck me about this book is how disfiguring loneliness is, how isolating, and how that isolation works kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The deeper you recede into your own loneliness, the harder it is to get out of it. So, in this episode of the Second Story Podcast, we're bringing you a story about someone who managed to reach outside of his own loneliness in a spectacular way. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, Second Story is proud to present Will Villagris. So I'm 24 and work at the desk of a computer lab, reading the best American non-required reading because I crave knowledge and studied my craft. Just kidding. I was trying to distract myself from the crushing anxiety and loneliness that had set in over the last month since I had started my last depressive episode. I had been off lithium for a little over a year, and reading was one of the few things that I could do to stop me from killing myself. Plus, it helped me find stories I could connect with, like the one that I was reading in the computer lab titled Jeff, One Lonely Guy. Jeff, One Lonely Guy, was the story about Jeff, of all people. A guy in New York who was lonely. I know, it's a heady concept, but try to keep up. (laughs) Jeff, to combat his loneliness, posted his phone number on a flyer that read, if anyone wants to talk about anything, call me. Jeff, one lonely guy. And lonely Jeff got thousands of texts and phone calls, encouraging him, sharing their own stories with him, connecting with him. I wanted that. Depression's isolating. And at 24, still in my undergrad, while Facebook filled up with people I went to high school with starting real careers or grad school, I felt more alone than ever. So if some Jeff could connect with people so easily, why couldn't I? I was lonely. I could make a flyer. But I was still on my parents' cell phone plan. You know, living the dream. So I didn't want to put my phone number on it. So instead, I made an email address, just sat there silently at gmail.com, that I set to forward to my real email address because, I mean, come on, Jeff. And I put it on tearaway strips at the bottom of a letter about my depression and isolation. Part of it said, do you ever wonder what it would be like to start fresh, move somewhere where no one knows who you are, to suddenly become free of the person you were and open to the possibilities of who you can become? Sometimes I worry I might freeze up and not be able to meet anyone and would live the rest of my life feeling sorry for myself. Please write back. And I printed my little flyer, and immediately I felt better. The computer lab was next to a big school bulletin board, overflowing with posters for performances and classes and study abroads and gear for sale. I walked right up to it and took my anonymous letter and put it smack in the center of the board. I went back and printed 20 more copies, thinking that I could get more responses if I put them in more places than just one school bulletin board. But when I went to tape one of my letters to a streetlight downtown, I froze. What was I doing? No one would care about some random lonely guy who was too embarrassed by his own loneliness to put his name on his long-ass letter, if anyone even read it. What made Jeff's sign special was his honesty. He said, lonely. He said, Jeff. He asked if anyone else wanted to talk. I was just a selfish loser who couldn't control his emotional state. I went home and spent the night crying in my room. 
In 2008, I went to a shrink after failing out of my first college. He said, you have bipolar disorder. And, well, you know that scene in like every movie or TV show where the main character gets a bad diagnosis? The sound goes out and the camera zooms in on the character's face and things start to blur and vignette around the edges of the screen? He kept talking, but I was holding on to his surprisingly comfortable couch with both hands, looking back and forth between the clowns on his throw pillow and his mismatched dress socks. <laughs> he filled out some prescriptions and started explaining how to take the medication so that I wouldn't fall into a coma, but I wasn't paying attention. I was staring up at the framed magazine cover that called him the best behavioral psychiatrist in Illinois. He didn't notice because the entire time he was talking, he didn't look me in the eye. See, all I knew of the bipolar disorder was the stigma that the words carry. It's basically a catch-all term for people who want a smarter sounding way of saying crazy. So it gets blamed for everything that goes wrong from spending an entire day in bed to taking apart all the appliances in your house with a screwdriver. And sometimes I stay in bed all day. And sometimes I hop a flight on a whim with no plans for when I land. And other times when things have gotten really bad, I just have to stop myself from jumping in front of trains. I didn't get any emails from my one sad letter, and eventually I just started to forget I ever did it. A couple of months of lonely computer lab time later, and I woke from a dream screaming. I've been trying to stab an intruder. They were running away, but all I wanted to do was kill. I screamed at them, threatening to do all sorts of horrible things. Dream me screamed and screamed until I shot up out of bed, still screaming, my throat raw. This was the third time I had woken up like that that week. I couldn't go back to sleep afterwards, so I just sat up, staring at the ceiling until the sun came up and it was time for work. By 10 in the morning, the walls were breathing from my exhaustion. I chugged coffee and energy drinks, but my eyelids wouldn't cooperate. I sat at my desk and started to doze off, but the image of waking up screaming would snap my head back before my chin hit my chest. And as I was about to get up and head to the vending machine for the hundredth time that day, I got this email. Hello. Our teacher, Mrs. K, saw your letter at Columbia College this past weekend. She told us about your story. We want to know more about you. Respond to Mrs. K's email if you'd like to, and she'll share it with us. We'll write back. Your friends, Mrs. K's 10th grade, second hour English class. Lucky for those kids, I was still depressed. <laughs> when I got that letter, all sorts of feelings washed over me. I was miserable that I had to reach out to some high school kids. I was thrilled that anyone wanted to talk to me. I got up and went to the vending machine not to wake up so that I wouldn't have to cry in front of my coworker. When I came back, I started writing to them, but I didn't know what to say. So I talked about the dream I just had, pressed send, and closed the browser. The next day I was on a flight to Boston for a conference, one that I had planned on sneaking into instead of paying for, to say nothing of begging floors and couches from friends. I had bought the plane tickets while manic, assuming that things would work out just fine once I landed. But on the flight, the kids and their email still fresh in my head. I started hoping that the pilot would crash us into the Appalachians. I started drinking on the plane to try to feel better, like I had been doing a lot at the time, and I stayed as drunk as possible through the whole conference. I was drinking away my social anxiety. I was drinking away the feeling of being lonely while surrounded by 10,000 other people. I was drinking away the nightmares and the emails to the class of high school sophomores. After four days and a mound of credit card debt, I felt worse than before I had left. I wanted to talk to someone about it, anyone, but I didn't have a shrink. So I waited to get back to Chicago and check my email. At home, 
I had a new response from Mrs. K's class. They'd expressed doubts that I was real, I was told. They thought maybe this was from a psychology class. The teacher had them assume that I really existed, and they did a poetry lesson, having them write response poems about loneliness. She sent a few samples of their work, and it was high school poetry. <laughs> Other students wrote letters back, all offering similar advice. Sometimes you must change yourself before you can really move on with your life. If it's really bad, seek help. Keep your head up. If you surround yourself with positive things, you'll be a happier person. And it's like, the fuck you know, teenagers? <laughs> I could just see them sitting there bored to death in their 10th grade, second hour English class. See them with their youthful exuberance and no crow's feet, being all like, well, have you like tried not being depressed? <laughs> I was mad. I was mad because I thought this grand experiment would have brought me some great truth. I thought I'd learn something about myself. But all I was learning is that teenagers are idiots. <laughs> and the teacher. The teacher said, you've inspired me to write more. Like this was some sort of fun writing exercise. Write an anonymous note and hope that a high school English class pesters you about your depression. <laughs> I got up from my computer and went to my roommate's liquor cabinet and helped myself to a wine glass full of Jack Daniels to calm down. <laughs> the help you get from people when you tell them you have a mental illness is usually far from helpful. It's a, well, just go talk to a professional. Like your insurance is eager to cover a psychiatrist's visit. It's like trying to go to a city-run mental health facility only to find out that half of them are closed and that the state's trying to cut even more funding. It's like finding out just a couple months ago that your shitty Medicaid isn't accepted by any of their own damn database of shrinks and holy shit, if you can't get your anxiety and mood swings under control, you're gonna throw yourself off a roof. Because instead of telling people, hey, sometimes shit gets hard, let's make sure you're doing all right, we say, hey, just suck it the fuck up. I sat back at my desk and went back to the emails. And that's what fucked me up. A student opened up in his letter about not knowing how to express his feelings and about how he always felt trapped and alone because he was always listening but never able to talk about himself. One said that I didn't have to be a stranger, that they wanted to know who I was as a person. One worried that by just sitting there silently, by not trying to make a difference in other people's lives, they were letting their own go to waste. And one said, all you can do is try to let it go. It'll get better, but it might get worse first. Fucking teenagers. <laughs> I wrote each student back. I let them know how much their words mattered to me, how their attempts to cheer up a stranger were noble and beautiful. I wrote to each student individually and then a letter to the class as a whole. I sent it, hopeful to hear from them more, that this urge to help and connect was inside of them now, that maybe they would help others like they were trying to help me. I never heard back. When I started writing this story, I went back to that old email account to revisit some of those moments, both the happy and the sad ones. And I found the last email I sent, the one only to the teacher, Mrs. K. Reading it was hard. Reflecting on a depressive episode much after the fact can make the time seem melodramatic. But when it had all just freshly abated, I said, and I might not have been able to go on had it not been for you and your students. When I got your first email, I was in a dark place, a low place, somewhere I didn't know if I could escape. But talking to all of you reminded me that there's so much more out there. Your students' hopefulness or shared sadness was inspiring. The fact that you took a chance in changing up your lessons to include helping a sad stranger is heartwarming. 
And I wish this is where I could say, and now, years later, I'm better. I'm cured. I don't need strangers on the internet to validate me. But that's not true. Every day is hard, either being depressed or manic or worried that the next day I'll be depressed or manic. Still, I try to remind myself of what one of those students said. It'll get better, but it might get worse first. And sometimes, it does get worse first. But sometimes, it gets better. This story was curated by Reshmi Hazra Rustabaki, directed by Thrissa Hoditz, with sound design by Ben Zeman. The Second Story podcast is produced by Liv Oaf. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Amanda Delheimer, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.